Thanksgiving Day to those family celebrations, passing on knowledge down through the years at the gathering of generations. Every year it's the same routine all over, all over. Good morning and welcome to episode 338 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus. I am Ben Lindbergh with Sam Miller. This is our last show before the Thanksgiving break, so we're doing email show. Uh, before we start that, I guess we can we can update an old topic about Deadspin buying a, a Hall of Fame vote. They have mm. successfully done so. Mm-hmm. Someone has uh, agreed to submit a ballot, I guess, voted on by by Deadspin readers. Is that how it's going to work? That's how I understand it, yeah. The irony would be if it ends up being a really bad <laughs> ballot anyway, which could happen. I don't know whether the, the typical Deadspin readership would be in line with, I don't know, like the, the standard sabermetric consensus on on what a Hall of Famer is, but um, I don't know whether the, the solution to improving the voting is necessarily a, a fan vote. That's not the, I don't, I don't. That I get no impression from this that the that the point is to turn in the best ballot. Yeah, I know it's just to. This is this is like process and the. It's right. It's it's basically street art, right? It's basically like vandalizing something serious with like your um your your Banksy or whatever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is this is Banksy. Isn't this isn't this supposed to be Banksy? Isn't it supposed to be Banksy? I think so. Yeah. I think so too. So I don't now. I don't know whether that improves anything though um uh well we already talked i guess about we already this. we already did a podcast <laughs> about this um, <laughs> yeah. i think uh, that the i think the nice thing is that it is not it uh it is not dictated what it's supposed to be so in fact uh there is like a meta level where uh it is crowdsourcing about what kind of crowdsourcing it will be like first First, they will the, the voters will decide on their own what they want this to be, and then once they've decided what they want it to be, uh, or I guess simultaneously, it's sort of a strange thing where you you vote twice at once without knowing what everybody else is going to do. Um, then they'll find out what it uh, you know what it actually is. So I would guess that there I don't know I guess I mean I would guess that there will be if I had to guess, <laughs> I would say that uh, Bonds and Clemens are automatic, that Bonds and Clemens will get in, uh-huh. and that um, probably the, the plurality beyond that would be mockery votes, but that they will be diluted by too many mockery candidates, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And so the serious votes will then um, uh, prevail with, with like a sort of even, like a, like a secondary plurality or whatever. Like they will be a strong, they will be the strongest subset, and so it will end up being. I would guess it will end up being uh, pretty close to the ten names that you would pick if you were doing, if you had a real vote. What do you think? Uh, yeah, if I had a, if I had a vote and and didn't have the ten person restriction, I think I would probably vote yes on at least fourteen guys on the ballot this year. Yeah, I counted fourteen and maybe fifteen. Yeah, there were a Who, couple. Who's your 
you, you and I disagree on BGO. I think BGO might... Uh, McGuire is my Cliff guy. Yeah, know? me too. Yeah. Um, so that means that there's at least one that we have different, because I don't have BGO. Uh, I have, yeah, Bagwell, BGO... Is it Larry Walker that we disagree on, maybe? I like, I have, I like yeah, Larry I have, Walker. Yeah, well, no, uh, you, I, you have one that I... I have one that you don't have, because you have BGO oh. and I have BGO. So okay. is, it, is it Schilling? Do you have Schilling? No, I have Schilling. Uh, Mussina? You have Mussina. I definitely have Mussina, yeah. Um, oh. Yeah, I have Bagwell, BGO, Bonds, Clemens, Glavin, Maddox, Martinez, Messina, Piazza, Reigns, Schilling, Thomas, Trammell, Walker. Uh, yeah, pretty much mine. I don't, I don't, I didn't notice which mm. name you didn't have. What do you, uh, what do you think it would look like if Hall of Fame voting just worked like all-star voting? Where it was you, have, the, yeah, you have, you have Piazza and you have Edgar Piazza. and you have, yes. and you have Glavin. Yeah. Uh, oh, Kent. Kent. I have Kent. I have Do you Ken have Kent? I did not put Kent in there, but I didn't really look hard. Because I might not have Kent in no there. I, Kent, Kent was one of my 14, but I put seven seconds of thought into this yeah, list. Yeah, I'd have to take a closer look. Uh, but what do you think it would look like if it were just opened up to fan voting? Would we would we be more annoyed by the results or less annoyed? I guess we'd be less annoyed in that we'd have fewer people writing sanctimonious columns about why they voted for someone or maybe we'd have even more but we wouldn't actually bother reading them uh but the actual results do you think they i mean we'd have you know there'd be there'd be no ped guys getting in right and jack morris would would still be getting in probably do you think is that just a, a baseball writer candidate or is that just a baseball fan non-sabermetric baseball fan candidate Man, I don't know. I don't. I don't know how the vote would go. I mean, the the um, the only real, I guess, the only thing that we have that is similar is the All Star voting, and yeah. the All Star voting is pretty pretty good until you get to the fan vote, the the final vote, in which case it goes completely bananas and it's basically just random, and people are voting for like their their geographic region. So it's it's always hard to know what incentives develop to uh, to sway the internet voter. Um, it does not take much to get the incentives all out of whack and have them voting on something totally absurd. Um, I would think that the public uh, that the popular opinion is uh, probably in line with the with the typical writer, but the popular opinion on the internet skews you know much lower and um, much lower, much younger. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore would be pretty well aligned with yours. I, I think there would be a couple of guys who are, you know, you appreciate more than the average 20, 24-year-old, uh, and maybe maybe a one or two that you appreciate a lot less, but I would bet that your 10 and, and the, the Internet 10 would be pretty similar. Mm-hmm. I would bet. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure ESPN has done some vote, and you could probably go see. Yeah. All right. Uh, what questions? What if you had to text? Answer? What if you had to text your answer in though? <laughs> uh, and normal texting charges apply. Um, yeah, it would be totally different. If it, if you had to text your answer in, it would be uh, out of control. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. All right. So what are we talking okay. about? 
Uh, all right, so I've got, I don't know, five, but two of them are basically just me reading long responses. Um, so, all right, uh, since there are two from Eric, <laughs> Eric Hartman, I will read one first so that I can read the second one later. Uh, Eric says, my question is simple and lacking in whimsy. Does a great framing catcher specifically help a control pitcher or a wild one more? And this is a great question that I'm glad he asked and that I'm surprised I've never asked you because um, it seems clear that a control pitcher helps a great framing catcher yeah. uh, or at least intuitively it would make sense I guess I guess it is not clear that that is the case and that's why uh, Max quit um, you know quit adjusting for pitcher right because he found mm -hmm. that it actually didn't make a big difference mm -hmm. but intuitively we all think that it does and that a guy who's catching Greg Maddox is gonna have a lot better uh, chance of stealing strikes than a guy who's catching Francisco Liriano. Um but whether that is actually truth or not um, the flip side question is interesting, and mm -hmm. I would think that it would help a wild one more. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I haven't looked into this. I don't know whether anyone has looked into this. Um, my, my instinct was, I, I kind of went back and forth. At first, I thought wild, just because you really need those extra strikes, and uh, even if maybe you're getting fewer of them because you're not able to target a certain area where you could get your catcher to frame them. Just the, I don't know, just the marginal benefit to a wild pitcher of getting some more extra strikes would be would be more valuable than to a control pitcher, pitcher. Then again, I don't know. If there were a pitcher with such great control that he really could just put the ball, you know, a few inches outside or he, he knows that his catcher is good on low pitches or outside pitches or whatever it is and he can really hit that spot potentially it would probably be more valuable for him but i guess you and i are both sort of skeptical about pitchers command right like and their their ability to to do that what, what was that stat that like you looked up a stat and then i piggybacked on it it was like oh, right with if you three oh three oh pitches to pitchers two pitchers yeah, yeah. with th on three oh counts two pitchers they throw the ball in the strike zone like six sixty-seven percent of the time, right? Two thirds of the time. I yeah. Think it, like yeah. when you right when you you have a free just an automatic strike, and I I guess that might be sort of skewed by the fact that you don't necessarily need to throw it in the strike zone because you know that on three zero the zone is bigger. No, 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 no. It's, you you there is no incentive to to not throw it right down the middle to a pitcher because you know he's not swinging. There, yeah. it, it's different. We didn't do three zero to Tory Hunter. Yeah. where you might theoretically talk yourself into the need to be cautious. There is zero chance that that pitcher is swinging, really, at the next pitch either. Now, it might it is skewed somewhat by the fact that the, the pitchers who are going to go 3-0 to another pitcher are yeah. going to be wilder pitchers, but right. um, we decided it didn't skew it all that much. And I forget, what did you do? You didn't. What did you do? You did another you, one, right? Uh, no, I think you had done 3-2, and then I did 3-0. Ah, oh, there we go. I think that was it. But so, so even if I mean, even if it's a a pitcher with better than average control, I, you know, maybe he he can throw a strike when he wants to three quarters of the time. So, and we're just talking in the zone or not in the zone. So that kind of makes me skeptical that a guy could be so good that he could place it consistently, you know, in a in the pretty small area where. A, a framing a good framing catcher makes the difference 
you know, it's really just uh, like a, a range of a, a few inches. I guess he could do it more often than someone who doesn't have good command. But um, what was your thought process for Wild? Uh, that it takes more technique to uh, to to make a, a frame look good. Um, and particularly, it takes more technique to not lose strikes um, that are in the strike zone. What is it the case that it, it is the case, right? That that framing it makes a bigger difference uh, on uh, getting strikes that wouldn't otherwise be strikes than on losing strikes that that should. So. Yeah, I think so. Uh, it just seems to me that um, that there's a lot of strikes that uh, Francisco Liriano throws that he doesn't get because you know he's missing to the wrong side of the plate and. So besides the stealing strikes aspect of it, you would have the losing strikes aspect of it a lot more. There'd be mm. a lot more balls where the catcher's skill would be in play. But, um, you know, you're right. The, the flip side is really whether the pitcher can change his game plan knowing he has a good catcher. Mm-hmm. Um, and if he can, then probably the sort of second level, like the ability to have a new strategy, like we're no longer just talking about the ability to get a strike you know, blessed uh, upon you every once in a while, but to actually have a different strategy would probably be greater. That's right. It was the I did the three two and you did the three zero, and they were almost exactly the same. And that's yeah. what made me think the three zero wasn't a skewed uh, sample mm-hmm. because the three two wouldn't be particularly skewed. I mean, there's nothing about going three two to a pitcher that screams wild. I mean, it's slightly wilder maybe than mm-hmm. usual, but basically it's just you know normal business. So mm-hmm. the fact that they were almost identical made me think that there was something to it anyway uh so what are we saying do, do we have a consensus uh no okay. <laughs> i guess not further research required okay um all right scott asks what's the over under on the number of yankees red Sox brawls that feature brian mccann as a central figure um and i'm the reason i read this is because it seems interesting to me how our Opinion of Brian McCann right now is that he is, uh, you know, the the policeman of the league. Uh, he's a punchline for you know his uh, enforcement of unwritten rules. It's what you know. The, it's the joke everybody was making, but you know, it's also like uh, you know in the BP annual. It's part of his comment is noting that that the stuff that he did, you know, the the blocking Carlos Gomez actually probably plays pretty well on the market because it established yeah. him as as a leader. Uh, mm-hmm. And as a you know a take charge catcher, and uh, that this is really his reputation now, and yet um, this wasn't as far as I can tell. And I checked with two other people before this podcast. As far as I can tell, this is a new reputation. This wasn't mm-hmm. like his reputation a year ago. No. He had basically one year with you know two events or so, uh, and maybe he had more this year, but you could very easily make the case that this was very specific to the time and place, the team he was on, um, you know, what he perceived to be the need of the team and that it will be really dramatically different, um, when he's with the Yankees. So I'm not sure that we should expect this to necessarily carry over. I mean, he's always been a guy who's had a good reputation for, for makeup and kind of on the field stuff. Um, not, not creating brawls, but, you know, being a, uh, you know, a, uh, a smart player, and uh, so it could just be that he's he was very good at reading the context, and that in fact he'll go to New York and 
um, it, it'll be a totally different role that he he takes on, and maybe we'll love him. Maybe the, I guess what I'm just saying is that maybe this is the last chance to get your uh, your licks in on Brian McCann. But please so, don't, because already too many people have. But yeah, but uh, right, I said the same sort of thing in my transaction analysis that 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 thing that infuriated everyone on the internet probably just endears him to to teammates and maybe to all players in a way, and that. Yeah, I think there were some articles written before those incidents about how he was taking on more of a leadership role because there was a leadership void with Chipper Jones retiring and he was kind of the the guy who'd been around for a while and he's a veteran now and he was stepping into this position. So you're right, maybe he goes to the Yankees and on the Yankees he's 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 a young guy all of a sudden. Uh, no, he's, he's 30, he's a spring yeah. chicken. Um, Youngest position player in their lineup. Uh, that's that's sad. Uh, but no, uh, no, no, David Ross either. By the way, that might have been significant. Uh huh. Yeah. So, um, so I'll put the the over under on brawls at at zero. Uh, you have to put it at a half. Okay, half. And I'll and take, the, take under. the under. <laughs> All right. I'll uh, I will also take the under. All right, uh, Kevin says, I was listening to Friday's email show and I was appalled at your lack of imagination in trying to come up with strategies as radical as never punting in football. How about eliminating the specialist duty of pitchers and instead filling a team of 25 hitters with 15 or so all-rounders who could also pitch? According to Google search, MLB position players have 7.8 runs allowed per nine as pitchers, but maybe you think that by selecting position players who would make good pitchers and by giving them a little bit of actual training, you could knock their talent down to about six. Keep in mind that you could get the platoon advantage for any hitter you wanted since you could change pitchers and keep them in the game at a different position. The MLB average was about 4.2 runs per nine last year, so you'd have to make up two runs per game to make this work, but you get a lot of advantages. You don't have to spend money on pitchers. You can sign star hitters for the top of your lineup. You don't have sucky hitting pitchers, if this is an NL team, and you have 25 credible position players, so you can platoon the heck out of your lineup and be aggressive about pinch hitting, pinch running, defensive substitutions. Would I recommend this? No. I don't think the math works, even with generous assumptions, was hoping the starting runs allowed nine of position players would be more like the high sixes, but it's radical, and you can see how it might make sense to somebody, especially at a lower level, parentheses, though I guess roster limits are less restrictive in college and such. So, uh, I mostly wanted to read this and ask you a question that's not even really part of this, but uh, if the ML position player, MLB position players have 7.8 runs allowed per nine as pitchers, uh, if they were tasked with pitching more than one inning in a blowout, uh-huh. like if, 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 one, if uh, Casper Wells actually started a game, and say, you know, you can say that maybe there are enough Casper Wells that fatigue is not an issue and arm injuries and attrition aren't is- issues, but he is pitching meaningful innings, right? So not blowouts, meaningful innings. Uh, what do you think that runs allowed per nine would be? Do you think that's actually, re- <clears throat> do you think that's a realistic estimate? Or are uh, we seeing, are we just seeing like a totally fake kind of baseball where the hitters aren't even trying? I I don't think that I would guess that the the fact that it's a blowout doesn't change things all that much because there's there's still pride at stake, right? I mean, hitters don't hitters don't want to strike out against a position player, and position players I think want to show off a little bit when they're on the mound, right? So I I don't think anyone's really not trying at 
I think if you if you put those players if those players just became pitchers and they focused on pitching full time, then I would think they'd have a lower uh, runs allowed. I I don't know if it's seven point eight two when they're just pitching, you know, one inning every five seasons or something. I think maybe they could get it down to. I don't know, uh, 6.5 or something. If they were, if they were real full-time pitchers with coaching and repetition and instruction and everything, I, I still don't think that they would be good. They'd still be pretty terrible, but probably better. Maybe they would have been better if they had, you know, at the appropriate age been coached as a pitcher. Cause the, the people, the position players who get selected to pitch in those games often have pitching experience, and maybe if they had devoted themselves to that from a young age, they could have been, they could have been better. But uh, I think they'd still be pretty terrible, not because of the the blowout thing, but just because they would, they'd be more devoted to it. They could be a little better than that. Yeah, it's one of the things that most blows my mind about baseball that non-pitchers can come in and face like Adrian Gonzalez and strike him out like yeah. it just absolutely I will never get used to that mm-hmm. and um, I would like to think that it's a motivation issue but you're right I mean when you watch this they look like their eyes are open and they're trying to hit the, the <laughs> ball they look unhappy when they strike out and you know hang up and listen once had a thing um, Josh Levine had a like a little item about how um, NBA players when they're it's like it's halftime and the buzzer's about to, you know, the buzzer's about to sound, and they're 55 feet away. Well, there's no law. Lo- there's nothing. There's no reason not to shoot the ball, right? You might get three points, mm-hmm. and so you know you'd help your team, right? And so they all throw it up. But there's <laughs> somebody did an analysis, and in fact, they all throw it up a half second too late because they don't want that going on their field goal percentage. <laughs> they, they don't want their stats to be affected by a shot that they have almost no shot of of actually making. Uh-huh. So players are keenly aware of how their stats affect their next contract. Yeah. And so you're right. I mean, it probably is. It might actually even be the case that they're more motivated, mm-hmm. um, knowing that it is a free opportunity to, to yeah, get to pad free, your stats. Yeah. And selfish, a, a chance where your selfishness is totally allowed. It's like yeah. there is no... I mean, obviously, most 99% of the time, what's good for you is good for the team. But there's not even, like, a thought about, like, you know, taking a first pitch to wear down the guy or to give your pitcher a chance to, you know, breathe. There's no chance of, you know, hitting, situational hitting. There's no, like, oh, you know, he struck out because he was swinging for the fences. What a jerk. Just swing for the fences. Do what, you know, do whatever is in your in your purest, purest, purest self-interest. And they still don't do all that well. So... Yeah, it's weird. It's probably right. So, uh, so anything else about this idea? I like the idea um, in general because uh, it obviously it wouldn't work, and it's it's too bad it wouldn't work because it'd be kind of fun. But I mean, it does seem like the closest the closest uh, idea to a radical idea is to not have any starting pitchers. And the first thing that you realize if you switch to a no starting pitchers team is how much money you save because you don't have to pay for starting pitchers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, relievers are generally, uh, especially if you're signing 70 of them, um, a lot cheaper. So uh, I like the idea of giving up on an expensive part of your team and filling it out with, with cheap ones. I mean, one of the great sort of, I don't know, I would say insights of Bill James' writing is that um, replacement level players are pretty good. Um, like, there's a, if, if you're, 
um, you know, paying if you're overpaying for mid-tier guys when replacement level players are sort of closer than we ever realized, you're spending too much on not that much gain. And so I like the idea of, of setting an even different replacement level that's even lower than replacement level and being even cheaper. Like if you could, if you if it turned out that the average college pitcher is only you know say two wins worse than than even the replacement level pitcher, and you could just go hire you know a thousand of these guys for for nothing. Um, then it'd be fun, but it probably isn't the case. Mm-hmm. Um, are you going to bring up Dan Brooks's email? I am. Okay. I am. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it for like 12 minutes. That's, <laughs> that's the next 12 minutes of this show. You can edit it. It's very long. It's a good uh, email, though. It is a good email. All right. So uh, Dan Brooks, uh, in response to the same topic, uh, which we were smitten by. We were smitten by the topic, the by the football coach who never punts. Uh, and probably didn't think critically enough about it. Uh, so Dan writes, uh, the reason going for it onside kicking is better in high school is kickers kind of suck and are generally inaccurate, bad at kicking the ball far, making it less likely they will convert field goals into points and kickoffs into negative plays. And onside kicks will be more successful because the opposing team has a weaker hands team and your team will be better coached to deal with them than the opposing team because you practice this dumb strategy. So the listener asked for a similar situation in baseball. I'm reminded of a team who, in my town's little league, 12 and 13-year-olds, would bunt often, like a lot. Six or seven bunts every time through the lineup. <laughs> Why? Well, let's see. Bunting players are much less likely to strike out, especially at 12 years old. Young catchers suck and can hardly get up and throw to first, let alone second. Young pitchers are generally not used to fueling their position. Young third basemen are not used to chasing down the ball. Young first basemen are often confused, not knowing whether to stay put and guard the bag or charge and grab a bunt near him. Uh, The baselines are shorter, and it's easier to beat out even a good play. Even an out at first often advances one or more runners. Crappy fields mean the ball would take a weird bounce and not be easy to pick up if you get there in time, etc. This makes bunting way better, all caps, at 12 and 13 than it is in the pros. Like, you scored dozens of runs per game. But most Little League coaches don't have all their hitters bunt. Why? Because it's a crappy strategy that takes advantage of the fact that your opponents have poor defensive skills, and rather than spending the time playing real baseball, you'd rather exploit the crap out of them. The guy doing cost-benefit analysis on his 14-year-old football players is this guy. Don't be this guy. Uh, basically true. Uh, I don't know I... that high school football is... I think high school football is okay. Yeah, high school I... football is, is practically semi-pro. Uh in many parts of the country mm-hmm. and uh i don't i don't know I, I don't know that i'm as worried about high school football players feelings especially if it's the if i mean you know if it's running up the score or something then maybe that's something but um i i see dan's point i don't think it's exactly analogous because i think uh bunting is something that you have to learn to do eventually uh maybe it Maybe it's done too often or historically has been done too often, but there's a, a point to bunt, bunting. There's a, a benefit to bo- a bunting. Major leaguers should bunt sometimes. Um, and, you know, and, and obviously it, if you're bunting all the time with literally little leaguers, then you are depriving them of, of some training actually hitting the ball. And, and I can see why that would be a bad thing. But in... In the example of the the coach who never punts, in in the interview that we heard, he said he was basing this on 
college data, first of all, and just, uh, you know, extrapolating that it would work even better in high school. But but the data that he was basing it on that that suggested that, you know, not ever punting is a good idea was based on college. And and similar analysis has been done on the NFL, right? Like even there, it's not a strategy that makes sense all that much. So he, I think, is, uh, you know, I don't think he is he's depriving these kids of of something that they should be learning how to do in a way it's, it's everyone else's fault for not, you know, for, for making them do those things when they really shouldn't have to like, he's, he's sort of in the right here, not making them do those things. The fact that when they get to be older and suddenly they'll be asked to punt or kick field goals and they won't know how to, I don't know if he's really responsible for that because that's a, that's an inefficiency that everyone else should be taking advantage of, but they're not. Yeah. I mean, it's not, they're not perfectly comparable. They're not the same scale. Um, I, one, I mean, the bunting is, yeah, like you say, it's, it's every, it's, you know, if you're doing it almost every play, you're, you're essentially stopping baseball from happening. Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, the, the not punting is, occasional and not punting doesn't really show up the other team either i mean i guess if you make a show of it and go on uh the today show and and talk about yourself then maybe you could make the case that you're sort of showing up your opponent maybe um you know if you're if it's for if it's fourth and 40 and you're at your own one yard line and you do it there's a point where it's like so so uh so showy that maybe maybe it is um showing up the opponent but you know, basically, the no punting isn't a big deal. The, the the onside kick is a bit. I mean, that is a, a sort of an odd way to play, and it really does capitalize on your opponent's failure in a way mm-hmm. that the no punting doesn't. Um, and I, I don't know. I could see that if I were a coach, I could see uh, not wanting to do that for class reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's true. I mean, the, the, the point, where, since we're a baseball show, the point that we often come back to is that your chances to do something really creative uh, in baseball are fairly limited. And um, when you start thinking about ways that you could do it in baseball, it um, you know it doesn't really work unless you're talking about 12 or 13-year-olds. And for 12 and 13-year-olds, yes, that seems like a pretty uncool thing to do. I, um, I guess I'm most reminded of like the way that when I was 12 or 11, I would uh, really try to abuse the gender split in co-ed games. And, (laughs) and then I turned 13 and was like, Oh, man, I'm like a horrible human being. And you just play right. It's Mm -hmm. not that important to win. Yeah, well, I guess you could make the argument that most of these kids aren't gonna go on to play baseball at a high level anyway. So you're teaching them a more valuable lesson. You're teaching them how to Quit now. exploit the that and <laughs> exploit the opponent's weakness. Baseball's boring. <laughs> it's just one guy bumping all the time. <laughs> yeah, become football fans. All right, last one is uh, from Eric. Uh, from uh, yeah, from Eric. It, it came from a different. Did it come from a different email address? Might have. <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, all right. Uh, let's say through some magic, Petco Park started playing exactly the same as Coors Field starting on opening day next year. How long would it take us to realize? And secondly, to realize it's not just noise. Mm. 
<laughs> I think it would. I mean, usually people say like you have to wait for a full season or longer for park factors to be like five years. Like yeah, it's, and it's like five years before you can say without with with reliable with with reliability. Usually, right? I mean, right. if you look at how Citizens Bank Ballpark has played, for instance. Um, it's all over the place. It, it, you know, five years, any five-year sample, or I guess any three-year sample would likely be misleading. Yeah, and especially if there's no reason for the change, if there's no fence moving in or humidor or, I, I don't know, some something that would explain why the most extreme pitcher's park is playing like the most extreme hitter's park or vice versa, it would probably take me years before i'd believe it right because oh, see well no i i think that this specific question uh the answer is two days before we noticed it and probably six weeks to two months before we thought it was uh, with 50 percent likelihood that it was more than just noise i mean to go from petco to Coors would be it would be players would be complaining about it or at least mentioning it by the second day but it would be so difficult to talk myself into why it was happening in the absence of no, in the absence of an explanation for it. How would yeah, you it, rationalize? I mean, how would well, you... yeah. If the if the question had had, especially if the question was starting on you know game, you know thirty nine of a season with with nothing changing. If it happened, if it started on opening day, we would probably be more attuned to things being weird and to showing up. You know, like that's how our brains work. But yeah, if nothing changed. Like I would just, you'd almost have to assume that something like some team was doctoring the ball or something, right? I mean, that would be like the most likely explanation. And it's so not would, likely, but, but. You would still, you would still acknowledge though that something was at play. That something had changed the offensive environment. Which yeah. is just as good as a park factor. I guess I'd have to. Uh, but. Yeah, I, I, I guess I don't know how long it would take statistically before the the odds of this scoring pattern happening at this park would, you know, make it so far fetched that it could just be chance. Um, but I don't think it's a matter of the statistics. That I think the statistics would be telling, and they would convince us. But I like I think players would be talking about it immediately, like just by the second day. I really think by the second day there would be. A, articles about you know what players felt yeah. like out there i mean they know how hard they hit the ball you know how hard you hit a ball immediately like i mean i've never played in the majors but i have played softball and you hit the ball and you know immediately whether it's over the left fielder's head yeah and i, I guess it's it would depend on on their explanation for why it was happening like if they because usually you'll hear well you know the i mean the fence is short so you don't have to hit it that hard for it to go out or maybe you'll hear the ball carries really well in this direction like there's a there's a wind tunnel or something where it it just flies out that way um so i guess if they had if they had some like like if they were just as mystified as we were and they were like i don't know how we're scoring all these runs we're just we keep hitting the ball really well then I don't know that I would buy it until like statistically it was so improbable that it could happen by chance. But if they had some explanation, like I, I don't know what, but if they had some explanation that could convince me that something real had, had happened, then I would have no choice but to accept it. Mm -hmm. End of the show. 
All right. Well, uh, this brings to to an end the nice little run we've had of of weeks ending in multiples of five. So we'll be back next <laughs> Thursday. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, you guys can tell us. Look, I've gotten a lot of uh, tweets and emails and Facebook group comments about how terrible it is that this is happening. Uh, so if you think it's so terrible that we should just take a couple days off next week, we could do that. I don't know whether it's worth it to you, um, but that would be one resolution. Otherwise, I guess it'll be a while until we're back on the optimal schedule, but it's something to look forward to. Uh, so we hope that you have uh, a nice break, nice Thanksgiving. Uh, we are thankful for your support and listening to us. And uh, if you are if you are thankful for for our continued uh, effort to bring you this show every day, then uh, you can show it by rating and reviewing us on iTunes and subscribing to the show on iTunes and telling your friends and family over the break that you listen to this baseball podcast you like. And uh, you can send us emails for next week at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. And if you want to talk to other listeners to get you through this showless period, you can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And we will be back next week. <laughs>